Hello friends, clients, and fellow financial advisors. My name is Ron Bullis, and I'm the CEO and founder of LifeWorks Advisors. My guest on today's show is someone who I have personally been following and learning from for the last six years. He is, in my opinion, one of the most effective coaches and developers of wealth management professionals and executives in our industry. His advice, teaching, and coaching has been instrumental in helping thousands of advisors, including my team, achieve amazing success, and in his words, get clear, get focused, and get results. He is the CEO and founder of ClientWise, the premier business, executive, and consulting firm working with financial professionals in our industry. He is a respected and highly experienced leader with an extensive resume and a history of high impact in our industry. But more important than that, he's passionately and tirelessly focused on leading the transformation of the wealth management industry and helping advisors move from being independent to building highly effective interdependent teams. He is someone that I believe every advisor and every firm leader should be following. Welcome to the future of advice, Ray Scalafani. Ray, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. So excited to be having this interview. In fact, um, every one of these uh, you know, future advice podcasts that I've gotten to do have been exciting, but this one's especially um, interesting and almost feels full circle for me. So I brought a uh, little quick plug, Ray's book, You've Been Framed, Everybody Should Buy It. You spoke at a Northwest Mutual event. January of like 2015, I found my original notes from the about no four pages That's fabulous. of notes. And when I look at the learning and the advice that you shared with me and my team then, and what we've implemented to get to where we're at, even you know, doing the Future Advice podcast, I would say ties back to Ray Sclafani, client-wise, January Well, thank you. Congratulations on all your success. You've come thank quite you. a long way and built a wonderful business. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a very interesting journey. So. For people that maybe aren't familiar with ClientWise, aren't familiar with who is Ray, and we'll talk about your book in the podcast here, um, let's just start with a quick intro. You've been in the industry for 30-some some years. years. Some 30-some yeah. years. Yeah. Um, let's start with a background on uh, you know, your experience in the industry and then maybe focus even on the catalyst or the inflection point, like how you went from actually being in the industry to you know, coaching, developing, and leading high-impact teams. Yeah, gotcha. There, there's, a, uh, there's a little bit of a funny connection. Um, I started in financial services at a high school at 17 uh, in New York City working for Alliance Capital. So I was a young intern, uh, really didn't know much of anything. Willie May was the head of the mailroom, and I pushed a mailroom cart in my first job. Uh, found myself doing lots of operational jobs. When I graduated college, obviously, I was uh, fortunate enough to get uh, a full-time position back in New York. Uh, I went to Baylor University in, uh, in Waco, Texas uh, for my undergraduate work. And interestingly enough, very quickly, Alliance asked me to move back to Texas, uh, and I was a young wholesaler calling on financial advisors. I didn't know much about the capital markets, about growth stocks versus value stocks versus bonds and risk products. Um, but I, I knew enough. I had a great mentor back then who suggested that I travel from office to office in the region I was responsible for covering, which at the time was North Texas and Oklahoma, and just see if I could get 15 minutes with all the top advisors 
and figure out what they were doing successfully and then repurpose those great ideas to share with you know, lots of other uh, advisors that were up and coming and wanting to grow. Very quickly, I, I learned that my passion was really uh, understanding what are the best in the business doing? What new grounds are they you know, carving? What new paths? How are they serving clients? How are they scaling and building their teams? I mean, this is back in the early 90s, of course, and I learned a lot, and I learned that I love that part about it. I happen to be good at the uh, sale of investment products um, and rose the ranks at Alliance uh, uh, Bernstein, now called AB, and uh, I was fortunate my last role uh, at Alliance Bernstein as a managing director uh, and a partner in the firm was to build out the Advisor Institute. And I, I took my original like experience and passion for helping advisors, learning from the best and sharing with the rest, to a spot where I could build out and do that for Alliance Bernstein. I had a vision beyond that, and uh, it was to build a coaching company to just fully focus on that and uh, at the time, that wasn't uh, going to work for uh, Alliance Bernstein, and so I decided to start my own 20 years and two days after my anniversary, uh, and uh, the ClientWise company was born. Now, I know, because I know your backstory a little bit, um, you had been part of Dan Sullivan's strategic coaching yeah. program. Yes. Talk a little bit about your, your use of coach. You've mentioned two things that I think are really important. You've mentioned you had a really great mentor which I think is key to every successful person I've got to interview and talk to. They had mentors or people, but you also were part of you know, a world-class coaching organization where you no were doubt. being coached. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that impact yeah. and how that framed and, and kind of set you up for your role that you have now. So, um, so uh, Dan Sullivan and, and his wife Babs uh, had a major influence, as did the strategic coach, uh, on, on me personally and also uh, I think really lit the fire uh, for my own, uh, own entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, Dan really encouraged me to think about how I can make a bigger impact. And uh, I was 17 years uh, in the strategic coach program and my schedule uh, just wouldn't allow me to uh, continue. I, I, I hope someday to go back and, and continue to learn from Dan. Um, but one of the things Dan talks a lot about is not only that uh, being an entrepreneur, uh, but also finding great mentors and building a network. Um, and so uh, I've always had an executive coach uh, who was really working with me uh, a performance uh, coach, really understanding how to be a more effective executive. Uh, I've worked hard to build a network of other professionals, so a group of uh, no less than five mentors, um, and uh, uh, continue to uh, learn and grow in lots of different ways. I'm going to come back to the, the, the no less than five mentors because uh, I know you fairly well and, and you have more energy than maybe anybody but me, um, that I've ever met. But, so I'm gonna come back to that five mentors thing, but talk a little bit about what ClientWise looks like today, who sure. you guys serve, just real quick, share a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, we are mostly a US-based uh, uh, company serving advisors in the United States. We exclusively focus in the financial services vertical and in that special little niche among high-performing financial advisor uh, businesses uh, who are committed to building enduring firms. Uh, we often think, uh, simply put, uh, building better businesses with purpose uh, is really what our mantra is here at ClientWise, getting clear, getting focused, getting results. Uh, we do have a small group of clients in Australia and in Canada as well. And uh, we just signed a partnership with Barron's Dow Jones uh, as their exclusive coaching provider. Congrats. So thank you very much. So we're working closely with Barron's to understand how we build better 
businesses with purpose uh, and data. <laughs> Barron's has been collecting data for 17 years among high-performing uh, practices and teams, and it's really interesting to see the patterns among what make those best in the business really thrive and grow, uh, increase their enterprise value, but more importantly, making bigger impact in their community. So today we're structured, we're Dallas-based. We uh, just moved a year ago from New York The Great uh, to Republic Dallas. of Texas. We have. We, uh, we're one of the part of the migration pattern, I think, from both coasts uh, into yeah. Florida and Texas. But uh, uh, we, we came to Texas. Uh, we built out an office here, a Business Builders Academy, where we've got groups of advisors. Uh, we hope someday you'll come back. We uh, obviously uh, build it and they will come. Uh, it's just taking a little longer with COVID, but uh, we're excited uh, uh, to continue to serve uh, advisors, not only in our signature programs uh, uh, online, uh, but also in person at some point in the future. Yeah, office space is beautiful. I'm looking forward to the Business Builders program being back in person, selfishly. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote from one of my favorite books. Um, the book is Essentialism by Greg McKeown. Ah, good book, yeah. Um, I always find myself circling back to it, especially when I find myself maybe doing too many things and, and losing focus. Um, I'm going to read you a quote, and then I'm going to ask you something specific about our industry that I think is a challenge, and we're going to shift gears, and I want to get your perspective on some of these challenges that advisors and firms are facing today. Here's the quote. The overwhelming reality is we live in a world where almost everything is worthless and very few things are exceptionally valuable. As John Maxwell has written, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. When I heard you speak the first time in 2015, one of the things that instantly a light bulb went off in my head was you were asking some questions and kind of poking at this idea, probably very much leading us to this idea, uh, we talked about this before on camera, about what is the value of wealth management and the value of an advisor. And I could be wrong about this, this might just be my kind of view of the world right now, but I seem to be running into this uh, identity issue and value issue with advisors and firms around the country where maybe they've historically had, you know, we manage assets, right? We build investment portfolios and with the advent of technology, you know, machine learning, robo-advisors, um, passive investing, right? It's maybe becoming more and more challenging, I think, to like stake your flag in that. So advisors are, you know, moving to, well, we do holistic planning and comprehensive planning, but business models and fee structures haven't maybe necessarily change to reflect that. So one of my kind of questions for you is, I think that there's a, a significant challenge with advisors and firms getting really clear on what it is that they do for clients that's exceptionally valuable, mm -hmm. and then shouting that from the rooftops. You work with thousands of advisors and firms across the country. What are you seeing in that regards? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, take. So uh, I think let's zoom out for a moment and just look at the profession overall and the impact that financial advisors have on the lives of so many. Mm -hmm. So uh, we believe uh, strongly uh, at our company, I personally believe strongly, that the impact a great advisor has makes this such a noble profession. I've never been a financial advisor, but I admire uh, advisors greatly uh, for the work uh, that they do with clients. And I've experienced that with my own uh, financial advisor. My wife and I uh, have as first-generation wealth creators. You know, if you, if you think about the nobility of the profession and the impact uh, that an advisor has, not only, not only in the life of that one client, but the ripple effect that that has multi-generational. Uh, I think if I go back to when I started in the business, uh, you know, Ron, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, very focused on investments, you know, a, a fee on investments. There was a big movement in the mid-90s, you know, from brokerage over to fee on AUM. Uh, and I think we've seen over the course of the last 15 years 
the impact uh, that advisors have from a holistic you know, wealth management planning perspective, there's been an evolution. I, I think of it as, you know, in the early days, advisors were learning sales skills. Then they acquired maybe some technical skills to build some efficacy to what it is that, you know, products and services they were presenting. I think the big shift really is around leadership. And the leadership that advisors bring not only to the families they serve, to the clients they serve, but how they're leading the transfer of that wisdom and knowledge to the next generation client. And uh, you think about uh, what it takes to build something that's truly enduring. The best in the business today are focused, this is our take, our observation, so it's my truth, it may not be true, um, but our observation is that advisors uh, who are really scaling up and growing are focused on uh, building succession strategies, not, not just for themselves, but for clients. And, and let, let, me be, let me be very specific. Most advisors imply, hey, uh, I'm gonna do what's in your best interest, uh, and I'll be here with you, Mr. and Mrs. Lubner, through life transition. Uh, you know, we'll serve you. Well, sort of. You know, uh, unless something happens to me, I become disabled or I pass away or I decide to retire. I mean, it's never said that way, right? But if you think about it, kind of the expectation that advisors have, you know, when they're building a relationship with clients is that they're going to be there for a while. I think they genuinely mean that. Um, But they won't. I mean, people eventually transition out of the business and they expire. And the whole idea of, you know, dying at your desk, you know, um, you know, with your boots, you know, and like, then what happens to the client? That's not so noble. So I think the value proposition is shifting. I, I think what I'm observing is advisors are smartly bringing on next gen talent. Uh, they're developing those ta- th- those talented professionals to be able to uh, build a trustful relationship multi-generationally uh, with the heirs of their clients' wealth, but it's going to require a much higher degree of uh, operational efficiency, uh, the advent of technology, and how that fuels the relationship, and what planning and philanthropic you know, sort of strategies look like. You know, the next gen's looking for something maybe a little bit different than uh, their parents and grandparents had. So advisors are needing to adapt to that. So the value creation is going to look different in the future than maybe what it has in the past. Yeah, and I think uh, you know I've I've said this to maybe a several dozen leaders of firms in the last two or three years. Um, I've asked the question: uh, How many of you in the room, you know, have an account at one of the leading robo advisors or fintechs, like a Wealthfront or a Betterment, or like go down the list? And I'll routinely be amazed at the number of people that say, "Why would I have done that?" It's like, well, because that next gen client, your clients, maybe kids or their grandkids. Like they have a smartphone, they download one of these robo-advisors apps, and they're literally managing all their money and they're investing in three minutes. Yeah, that's right. right. Well, and, and you've got the crypto, yeah. right? You've got the excitement with all you know the the hot stocks and you know yeah. GameStop and the like. I'm watching my own young son. You know, over the last uh, three months, it's absolutely hilarious how he's dug in. I mean, he just graduated with his master's in accounting and finance, and uh, he's studying for his CPA exams as he transitions and works with KPMG. You know, here in the fall. Uh, but in the interim, you know, he's. He's, you know, trading, you know, GameStop. He's making yeah. money, and he's concerned that the brokerage firm that he has uh, chosen, uh, no names mentioned, is actually uh, leveraging his shares, and he doesn't want those shares leveraged. And he's yeah. like, "No, I want those shares in my account." Yeah. I mean, this next gen, man, they're all over it. They're so on un- total different yeah. level of conversation yeah. for sure. I've been seeing, and, and we have, you know, at our firm and, and some of the advisors that are kind of, uh, kind of close to us that it's less now about accessing the markets 
and it's even less about like a conversation about what they're owning or not owning. It's really more about like navigating. Like, how do we pull all these pieces together? Yeah. You know, they're saying to us, like, look, I can get online and I can buy all of those things yes. faster than you can open an account for me, Ron. And it's like, yep, true. that's true. Very <laughs> true. Yeah. And you can do all those things with no liability and risk, where if I even like step into some of those spaces, right? Um, but it, it starts to become a conversation, and I hear things like, but I want to have somebody make sure that I don't make the mistakes my parents made, or I want somebody just to like handle all of this stuff because I don't want to dig in and learn employee benefits and taxes and you know this kind of thing. So I think it's I think it's you know the technology piece is shifting. Uh, I want to I want to read another quote, but this one's from uh, TD Ameritrade does their FA Insight study. Uh, I think every other year or something like this, uh, our firm's gotten to participate in it now for the last couple of years, and this. The 2021 I found, I mean, it came out right kind of in, in the, I'll say, I won't say the middle of COVID, because who knows whether we're in the beginning of the middle of the end, right? <laughs> Let's um, hope we're at the end. But, but it came out, you know, in the summer of 2020, and uh, there's some really interesting, so I want to read a quote for this and then ask you a question about pricing and business models. So here's the quote from the 2020 FA Insight study by TD Ameritrade. A pricing structure inconsistent with the value provided handicaps firms when it comes to telling their value story. This is particularly relevant when firms are heavily reliant on AUM-linked fees, while so many services that clients receive are unrelated to the managing of investments. In that same study, they said that the average firm surveyed listed 15 on average services that they provided their clients. But 96% of their revenue came from the two around assets under management. No surprise. Yeah, right. no surprise. So pull this into the conversation about you know this idea of what a firm has to look like in the future. What these challenges, this challenge on the business model and having to deliver a different value to. I'm not even going to say next gen client because I think baby boomers, right, are. Oh yeah, they're all over. They're yeah. all over this now too. Totally. Right? Yeah. So talk, share, share. Okay, this, 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 this is also a big question. This, so a, this is a one. huge question, yeah. and, and this is this is the third rail on the seven line uh, subway in New York City. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those tricky ones, uh, but 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 let me tell you how I think about it. Yeah. It's about alignment. Uh, simply put, it's about alignment. The alignment between the value that advisors bring to the relationship and the fee that they charge for the value that's created is not an alignment in many ways with what clients need and want and value today and what advisors value in their delivery to clients. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Mark Tabersian, uh, who uh, is a genius uh, in his own uh, right, um, and uh, uh, once said uh, to a group of advisors, um, uh, the value that uh, uh, an advisor brings to the client is not aligned with the value uh, that the client brings to the relationship. In other words, if you think about, you know, this is a funny industry. Uh, the value is what the client brings to the relationship. If they bring you know, a million dollars of investable assets, the advisor charges a fee on that. If they bring five million to the relationship, there's a fee for that. So this is an interesting one. And, and, and I think about what the best advisors, the most effective advisors, the, uh, the most successful advisors are building their teams out to deliver value on the planning side, mm -hmm. on, on removing the complexity. I mean, as a, as a client sort of increases uh, their affluence, there's a level of complexity mm -hmm. that increases as well. And the advisors who seemingly uh, are able to remove some of that complexity and simplify uh, tend to win big. Uh, I think if you also step back and look at uh, the fiduciary, uh, the fee on AUM model, 
uh, you know, there's not many advisors uh, who charge the same fee for every client. There's not every client that values just the fee on the AUM. So there's a there's a disconnect here uh, that I think will be uh, uh, will shift. I think in in the future. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it'll shift anytime soon. Uh, I think this uh, fee on assets under management is sort of a, a, a gig in town that works. It works for clients, it works for advisors, but it's getting trickier for advisors to be able to say to the client, wait a minute, so I'm gonna charge you a fee here, uh, but I'm gonna do all these other things for you. Um, but what we're watching is the advisors who shift that fee, I'm not saying they're getting rid of their fee on AUM, I think they're keeping their fee on AUM because they're charging fee for It's a legitimate job function. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But I'm noticing more and more advisors, especially in the independent and RIA space, are increasing sort of the fee for planning, that fee for service. I mean, if you, if you really stop and think about the fiduciary, it's the fee for service, not the fee on AUM. Correct. And, and that, that is the ground level of value creation. And when you ask a client, hey, what's the one thing you value most about my firm and I and how we serve you? You know, it isn't likely to be, oh, well, you manage my money better than anybody else. And so I think as advisors really check in with where they believe their value creation sits, most often it'll be in the relationship they have with the client. The clients trust advisors deeply. And there's value creation in building that trust with their family to serve as an advisor. In fact, it's funny, I ask advisors all the time, like, uh, do you help clients through uh, transition, sending kids to college? Yes. Uh, have you ever uh, attended a funeral? Yes. Uh, uh, how many you know, of these advisors are you know, helping uh, uh, parents navigate raising of children or you know, help them think about, hey, should we lease or buy a car? Uh, oh my gosh, we're thinking about refinancing. What do you think of these banking rates? They don't get compensated for any of that. Yeah. So there's this disconnect. Mm -hmm. I think in time, uh, that'll change more broadly for an industry. Again, I just want to emphasize, I don't think that that fee on AUM yeah. should go away. Yeah. But I think advisors have to start thinking about all the other great work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Just look at the good, uh, good organization, you know, the certified financial planning or organization, you know, and the certification and credential that comes with you know, lots of people say they do planning, yeah. but the ones that really go out and get trained and, and have a fiduciary standard, have a code of ethics, a, a good standard of conduct, and have a litany of uh, pillars uh, in financial services, I think those advisors that really charge for the fee on that complete holistic space uh, will win bigger uh, over time. Well, and you mentioned, I mean, there's lots of things in there that you mentioned that I want to, you know, circle to and, and pick on. One of them was planning, right? I think. Uh, one of the things that I'm seeing is this kind of this sea of sameness, right? Where almost every firm now says something like, "We do comprehensive financial, right. comprehensive wealth management, comprehensive, comprehensive wealth financial management. planning." Sure. And then it's like, well, what's your definition? This is a question you asked in 2015. I have it written in my my in your notes. notes. Yeah. <laughs> and the question was, what is your definition of wealth management? And you challenged us, and and I've heard you do this numerous times now to actually think about how do I frame that? How do I define it? And then novel enough, you mentioned something that's one of the things in your book you've been framed as, go ask your 25 best clients. Yes. Like, how do you define me? How do you define wealth yes. management? There are five questions every advisor needs to ask. Yeah, take us through those. Every client, yeah. every 18 months. Okay. And I'm not kidding you, by the way. It's not a one and done. This it's is not a one done. Because by the way, the subtitle of my book is, 
how to reframe your wealth management business and renew client relationships, which is really the secret sauce in all of this, that if you're uh, growing a business and scaling a business as an advisor, and you're building out your next gen team, and you're really thinking about uh, the evolution of the business, things are gonna change. The client's perception of your business may change, um, and how you plan on reframing that really matters. And the only way you know as an advisor if you've moved the needle and you're reframing um, and rebranding and transitioning, which by the way, usually happens naturally every three years, whether you like it or not, uh, is to step in about every 18 months and, and ask clients five questions, very simple. What's the one thing you value most about my firm and how I serve you? And it's a one thing question. It's not what's the most important thing. You ask somebody what the most important thing is and they get shut stuck. down. They get stuck. Yeah. They, ah, I can't oh, think of anything. I gotta pick, okay. I gotta pick, what is it? Right, right, yeah. and they'll give you a few things, but it won't be. But what's the one thing? When you ask somebody what's the one thing, they'll give you three things mm-hmm. and they'll unpack them in the order of importance. Mm-hmm. The second question is, what's the one thing you would want us to change or improve about how we serve you? The third question uh, was the greatest mistake, I think, as a writer I ever made. Um, it's like New Coke, you know, wait, uh, hold on a second. No, let's go back to classic, right? This is a funny question. Um, I, I wrote the question um, for an advisor to ask clients, how would you describe the services that my firm and I provide you? Sure. That was the question. And yep. the question was written to be sort of answered by a client with, how would you describe the services that my firm and I provide you? And what ended up happening is we had uh, uh, close to 500 advisors go out and ask the question, and we had them report back, like, what did you hear? Over 90% of the clients, or the advisors, said the client said the exact same thing, which is, oh, geez, I care about you. Uh, Oh, you take care of my family. Uh, oh, you've always been here for me. It had nothing to do with products or services. Interesting. It was really, really fascinating. How would you describe uh, the services my firm and I provide you? Elicited uh, you're unexpectedly, you're here for me. You, you take good care of us. We trust you. Okay, so uh, that's a pretty powerful answer for a client to evoke. Uh, you know, for a question to be evoking that kind of answer is pretty powerful. So it didn't get to what I really wanted to get to, which is like, what is the client valuing and how would they say out loud what it is that uh, they've experienced with their advisor to a neighbor or a colleague or somebody, right? So we added the fourth question. um, And I wrote the fourth question to be very specific, which is, what do you believe we've achieved together Mm -hmm. in the 15 years we've worked together? It's a very simple question. It's an achievement question and it gets to the heart of the matter. Um, And the advisor before asking that question should be prepared with examples of things they've They've done together. Right. Because sometimes clients need a little bit of a trigger. You know, they need a little reminder, a little help along the way. Well, that question leads to a very powerful unpacking of the value, what what the client really values. And we didn't hear very often, um, uh, well, you know, you made 12.6% compounded on our investment portfolio over the course of the last 27 years. No, it was about financial security. Uh, It was about sort of getting the financial house in order. You know, we've had thousands of advisors now complete the client-wise conversation. And we've got all of our clients, about every 18 months, we're encouraging our clients uh, who are advisory firms to be asking their clients those questions as well. So that's question number four. By the way, question number four, I would ask in every client review. Since we met last. Yeah, people forget. We forget. What did we achieve? We uh, internally on our team, you know, have adopted 
the you know your keep stop start exercise right now and, and one of the pieces to that is saying you know in the last 90 days what are the you know what are my professional accomplishments absolutely because what we, we achieved yeah and i even think about as you're just saying that i'm wondering like okay if i was to take a list of the clients that i'm still serving and if i had to write a list right now like what are the things that we've done say in the last 90 days the last six months not just what it. you've done yeah. what have you achieved yeah. The achievement word is a powerful word. It's an anchor word. And you got to ask, if the clients understand what they've achieved in working with their advisor, they're telling you what they value and they're unpacking that in the order of priority. So, uh, So by asking that in a client review, it's, hey, in the last 90 days or in the last six months, what do you believe we've achieved together? Let's see, we've rebalanced uh, investment portfolios. We've changed ben- beneficiary designations. We ran an ed- educational seminar for your next-gen uh, uh, clients. Um, uh, you know, we helped uh, sell the business uh, by giving you some advice and guidance around that. Like, all of a sudden now, there's a whole level of, well, document that. Mm-hmm. Document that. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, bring that forward. Hey, by the way... You know, we accomplished a lot together this year. Look what all we've achieved in the you know last 12 months. You start thinking about that. There's value in that, and that fee for service anchors to that. Okay, fifth question, very, uh, very quickly. Uh, among your other trusted advisors, Mr. And Mrs. Lubner, uh, who do you trust the most, and why? So the among your other trusted advisors implies a you have them. And B, that the advisor asking the question is one of them, right? Um, uh, and you got to know who the other trusted advisors are uh, in the client's uh, life. Uh, there's a couple of purposes for the question. One is uh, we want uh, our advisor clients to, to know who the other influencers are uh, in the relationship so they can really envelop uh, the client relationship. But the second reason is uh, the best advisors in the business actually build a network of centers of influence and other trusted advisors. And the most effective way to partner with that group is to identify who among the short list of the best clients uh, are the most trusted advisors and begin building a partnership there. So it's a whole other strategy called the Professional Advocate Network, but, uh, but that's a good way to get there as well. These questions are powerful, and uh, we've used them for 15 years. The first program I wrote was our Loyal Client Advocate Program, and the first step in the process is to ask these five questions of about 25 clients. Um, and, uh, and the more clients you can ask, the better. You know, uh, advisors want to like mass email a survey monkey or something out. I would not do that. This is a personal phone call, maybe a personal video meeting or a personal cup of coffee kind of in-person appointment. Um, and uh, about every 18 months, you start doing this consistently. We've got clients now that have done this seven or eight times, and they've watched their firm evolve with their next gen, and it's really worked well. Well, I, I heard, um, and I'll, it's probably a paraphrase, but it's now a quote that sits on my desk. Uh, a speaker at a Barron's Teams event, Peter Sheehan, said, the rate of change you experienced in the last 12 months is the slowest rate of change you will have for the rest of your life. Perfect quote. It's right on. I would agree. And I think to myself, uh, I'm actually going like, well, when was the last time we did this exercise? Because we, I did this exercise back when I, before I started my own firm. And the answers I heard back from the clients were shocking. Right? My answers weren't their answers. And, and I started realizing, like, well, who I want to be and evolve to and the type of practice and firm I want to have like, it's not that it's bad, but it doesn't align with their view, their frame of me, right? And yeah. so then that reframing process became a little bit painful, but also freeing in some regards because we were able to line up. This is the way we want to work, and yeah. this is how we create value. And we actually started growing even more rapidly because so, we started attracting the clients that's that right. were like, oh, yeah, we value that, and we hear you saying that. 
and now there's alignment, and it was like, bam, growth started happening. So, so alignment's the key there. What you yeah. just described was the shift yes. that most of the best advisors experience, which is you know, the old structure was a very hierarchical structure. Yeah. I mean, go back to the days where if you didn't have a broker, you couldn't make an investment. You know, you know, before uh, the online brokerage world, you know, emerged, you know, you had to call a broker to buy a stock or a bond and the brokerage firms took down an inventory of those stocks and bonds and the brokers were simply liquidating that inventory. And, you know, there was a different game afoot. Yeah. Uh, the advent of the online brokerage was, oh, my gosh, brokerage is dead, you know, like uh, and it really wasn't. Uh, but the shift was you needed a broker. It was a very hierarchical structure. Well, the, the minute that you flattened the playing field and now all of a sudden uh, consumers could go online and build a financial plan, you know, they could get a robot, you know, to run their money, something shifted. Um, and there's an equality in a relationship. The, the best advisors have this partnership of equality with clients where they're not sitting across the desk any longer. They're sitting alongside of their client and they're really deeply understanding what their clients want to achieve uh, with their wealth, what their goals and dreams really are. And it sounds so trite and simple and like, man, everybody says the same thing. But if advisors stop and, and just pause for a moment to reflect what value do we really bring, most of it is deep within the relationship that they share and somebody understanding them. That's a human element. I think we've seen that amplified in the last year. I mean, I've watched some of the best advisors amidst the pandemic with a sense of agility, a shift so quickly and uh, grow their businesses so much in a period of time where they didn't have the old structures, right? But it was the deep connection with clients uh, where everybody was on the same page. That's a, that's a profound shift I think we've seen in the last 25 years. Yeah, and even just the the shift of, you know, we were in a space in, in kind of the Midwest where, you know, you meet for breakfast, you meet for lunch, you meet for a coffee, right? And and now all of a sudden there's none of that. Right. But now even the, the clients, especially the ones that are busy and knocking the cover off the ball, like, you know, the best future clients are like, hey, you know, that hour of driving yeah, back don't need that anymore. don't need it anymore. Right. So even just rethinking, like, how do you build a meaningful relationship and connect to somebody on a personal level through a computer screen? Right. And, and even just training for that and gearing up for that and getting mentally prepared. It's different. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Massive well, shift. and I think we'll value the in-person time yeah. even more so. Oh, it, sure. It'll amplify the time it takes to actually physically get uh, to see yeah. somebody in person. Yeah. Case in point. Hey, Ray, I would like to have you on the podcast. Ron, I'd love to do the podcast. Great. I'm flying to Dallas so we can do this in person. I love it. Yeah. Right on. It, it's, it's, it's extremely valuable. In fact, I've, I've, become aware of how much I underestimated the value of really, really meaningful connections, both in the industry and with clients. You take it for granted yeah, when it's for sure. uh, all you do. And then the world shuts down. You go, wait a minute. I missed that. Exactly. Look what Peloton's done, right? Yeah. Uh, when you stop and think about the deep connectivity yeah. uh, and the value creation and the ease and simplicity, but yet keeping people connected, mm -hmm. there's something pretty magical in that business model, whether you're a, a Peloton owner, subscriber or not. You start looking at these business models that are allowing advisors or you know communities to to form, thinking about how advisors build their community of the like. Uh, I've got a client of ours. He's uh, uh, actually using the Peloton platform to do weekly rides with clients, bringing huh. people together with a hashtag. Uh, you know, a couple of guys in our office that are Peloton uh, guys. Got to get on that's, them, right? That's actually a really great idea. 
How simple, right? Now, here's a company, right? Genius company yeah. that created a platform of inclusivity, yeah. right? Inclusivity and yeah. said, hey, come just join up. And by the way, go build your own mini communities, right? Hashtag, you know, whatever you want, live well, or, you know, like think about what's possible. I think we're going to see more of that interdependence uh, emerge in, in society uh, on the whole. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So we've been for maybe two and a half years doing a lot of our business development focus has been, you know, uh, digital marketing and, and building clients around the country. Part of that was a shift of, of business planning that came out of doing the business builder workshops with, with your team with this idea of not wanting to have my entire practice be susceptible to like one localized economy yeah. and building, you know, virtual teams. Like I don't have to have every advisor in my office. I don't have to have their lead advisor here. Like now that's it. now that's fast forward and we're here and it's accepted, yeah. Yeah. but I still see advisors, uh, and I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges they face, which is now business development, right? Um, I think you know in a world where everybody's connected, I still see advisors and firms struggling now on the business development side, right? Because the way they were doing it, I'll back up a little bit. The founder of Airbnb said the first swipe at Airbnb, they realized they hadn't designed their system to build trust rapidly. And so they had to go back and redesign for this idea of sure. how do you get two total strangers to trust, trust each other, right? And then share space. And I think the building of trust, especially with business development and prospects, and I'd love your thought on this, like how do we build systems and structures that are repeatable and scalable in the digital age we're living in now that build trust rapidly, whereas I might be able to overcompensate for maybe not as good of a system and structure because I could meet with you in person and we could connect with energy and right, right. share a meal, which for every human being everywhere on the planet, that's a very intimate thing, right? Yes. Um, talk to us about what you're also seeing the best teams doing of this ship, like building systems and structures to scale business development and build trust Ooh, in our okay. new... Yeah, not saying I hate new normal. It's also a cliche, but yeah, in the new normal. World. Yeah, well, where we are yeah. for sure now. Um, Airbnb is a good example. Uh, there's a durability uh, about the application. Uh, there's a precision uh, and a and a factness, truthfulness about the information that's present. Uh, there's a rating system uh, about the quality of the experience, right? So there there are protocols that are built into a structure like that. Um, that are worth noting. Uh, so uh, does the advisor show up uh, on time? How does the advisor uh, show up and present themselves? What's that executive presence look like? What are the digital materials uh, that they're using? Is there operational efficiency uh, in scheduling of the appointment, uh, the confirmation of the appointment? Uh, uh, you know, little things along the way, um, you, know, it, you know, is there a check-in with the prospective client about, you know, do they have a good camera, a good system? Uh, maybe we need to send a tech up available to help them set up, uh, you, you know, the, uh, the Zoom uh, meeting. Yeah. Uh, one of the advisors I was speaking to, uh, they actually took uh, the youngest person on their team and said, you're in charge of the tech experience for our, all of our clients and prospects. So your job is to make sure, this was like back last May. Wow. He said, your job is to make sure that every client and prospective client has a superior experience with the use of technology. Uh, and so the team rallied together and they started creating That's like this. fabulous idea. Like think how silly it is. Like yeah. so not everybody, they, they said they uh, taught more uh, people how to use FaceTime, how to download Zoom. Now, this was early days, right? Yeah. So now yeah. it's like the world has kind of sort of all figured it out. Yeah. But like looking for those little ways to build trust, like, hey, we're here for you, right? Do you have a laptop? 
Do you need to buy a laptop? Hey, we can help you find one, you know, and, and we can give you some recommendations on what to buy, right? Like all of those little, those build trust, and we haven't even talked about your goals for wealth planning. We're just talking about how we connect with each other, right? So uh, I think all of those little uh, uh, elements of the prelude to a meeting, uh, what the experience is like during the meeting. Uh, communication is not only uh, the words people use, but the rhythm, the timber, the volume. And when you're dealing with a speaker and a lighting, you know, like rhythm Internet and timber. connection. Yeah, yeah inter- freeze. Freeze, uh, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and little things like that um, uh, really do make a difference. One of the advisors we coach very early on, uh, super smart uh, advisor, said to all of his team, look, we don't know how long this is gonna last, but the very first thing I want you to do is call your internet company, um, and if you're, if you're not on fiber, uh, get on fiber, um, and whatever the highest speed upload and download is that you can buy from them, buy it, and we'll pay your bill until this COVID thing is over. And now, super simple, silly, yeah. right? Uh, but how many of the team members were on cable where the download speed sure. didn't match the upload speed? Yeah. Uh, they were able to get on, on a fiber. Those that weren't maxed out, whatever it was. Um, hey, what computers are you on? Uh, what does your lighting system look like? I mean, as crazy it is, this will be, uh, moving into the future, a norm. Even when people come back to an office space, and, and many will. I mean, it's not all going to stay virtual. Uh, and we can talk about that more if you want. But, but but as you come back to an office, is the office equipped? Yeah. I mean, one of the things we did as we transitioned from New York to Dallas, uh, in the middle of the transition, I'm paying attention to what's happening. I'm thinking, okay, time out. Whatever monitors we were going to put on the wall, whatever dry erase markers, you know, like uh, whatever cameras we were going to use, uh, whatever our internet speed was, like we got to upgrade all of that because we're going to be using all of this for a while. And uh, so whatever that technology experience, I'm still amazed though. Some advisors show up for meetings, you know, and uh, their camera's fuzzy and it's like, hey, wait a minute. This is the experience your prospective clients and clients are going to have. Hey, one of the last quick thing. I just, Mm -hmm. you you mentioned something too about this virtual thing. Um, Look, most advisors uh, have clients uh, in many cases in a lot of different states. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that, You've got, already got a national business, yeah. right? Um, do you all need to be in the same physical location to serve clients nationally or internationally? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, I, what I'm seeing is a pretty interesting pattern of uh, advisors who are uh, not just looking in their region for talent anymore. Uh, they're looking uh, nationally for talent. And so the searches are bringing uh, a whole lot better talent. And if I step back and I'm uh, going to be r- really direct, the greatest threat to our industry is not the robo. It's not you know the future of DOL or the fiduciary standard or you know uh, uh, some kind of black swan event where Apple all of a sudden is built an entire wealth management business. It, it, it is uh, the race for talent. Hmm. Yeah, let's pause. That's actually the, that was going to be one of the, the key topics I want to talk about because I agree with you. Um, I mean, robos have been around now for 15 plus years, going into two decades, right? And before I was in the business and, and right as I was starting, I had perfectly timed uh, entry into the world of wealth management. I started in February of 08. That's perfect timing. Um, yeah, perfect sure. time, right? Everything's right. chaos. Baptism by fire. Yeah, everything's chaos, but, you know, um, 
it's also good when you're at zero. There was nothing, you know, I didn't go, I didn't go <laughs> from 100 off the million floor. to 40 million, right? right? Um, <laughs> robos haven't changed the desire. In fact, uh, Ernst & Young does a global wealth management report. I find myself referencing it all the time. The last one that I can find um, was from 2019. It's the, if you Google it, it's the 2019 Ernst & Young global wealth management report. And they talked about some really, really interesting things in there. Um, one of them was they said that 80% of the 4,000-some wealth management clients they surveyed said they wanted more financial advice, more personalized advice and planning, right? Like 70% of them had more than one fintech application on their phone. And these aren't just, you know, 30-year-old, 25-year-olds. The fastest rate of fintech adopters in their report was the baby boomers, right? So what, what was the aha for me was that this isn't, like, technology is important, right? But we can't blame not bringing on clients because of bad technology. Um, and, and technology, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Google stepping into wealth management, isn't going to change the fact, I believe, that when a person gets ready to make the biggest decision of their life, there is something comforting about having somebody they trust that's a partner to say, what do you think? Am I making the right decision? Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. Uh, let me just pull a thread yeah. on that because I think it's a little bit bigger than that. Okay. Uh, it isn't about the one lifetime decision someone's going to make. Mm. There's a there's a, a, a periodic uh, element of smaller decisions along the way, and uh, as advisors uh, become more of a thought partner uh, to uh, to their clients, um, we're actually seeing more and more advisors enroll in our coaching skills course because they're interested in acquiring those skills to be able to partner with the client and help the client make powerful decisions irregardless of uh, the wealth piece or the retirement piece or the, but think about the myriad of decisions, uh, the, 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 you know, the kids, the college, the relocation, the job change, the selling of the business, the, there's a whole bunch. Every one of those instances is an opportunity to deepen trust uh, by listening to the client uh, by partnering with the client, uh, by supporting the client's decision. Like there's all of that. And, you know, you ask advisors that have been in this business 15, 20, 30 years, you know, they think about the journey of, of trust building that has been made over the course of a relationship. When you do get to those bigger, chunky, like, oh my gosh, decisions, that client knows who to call because they've had a track record of trust. Yeah. That's very different. So I, I, I think... Um, yeah, there may be uh, uh, clients, even the boomers, you know, uh, uh, setting up a line of credit, you know, through their, you know, mobile mm -hmm. banking app. Yeah. Um, uh, so it might be a transaction. Mm -hmm. It's not the transactional piece. We better make that transactional piece easy. Yes. Right. There's an ex expectation of at least a reasonably good client experience now. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's table that, stakes, that's, right? That's, that's Amazon changed that for everybody. Yes. We've all learned that, yes. right? I expect it to my doorstep in two days. Okay, I can make that happen with a click of a button. In fact, I don't even have to click the button. They know that I order the same protein powder, you know, every four weeks, and so it just shows up now. When you're right? on a first-name basis with your UPS driver and your FedEx driver, Absolutely. as we are in yep. my house with four yep. kids, um, two Amazon deliveries a day on average, you're right. The immediacy of this, uh, you know, Amazon's driven it. Netflix drove it, right? When you got to where, I mean, Netflix was kind of the first streaming service, really, that shifted the world. And yeah. you were like, hey, I want to watch this, and I want to watch it for the next <laughs> right. 24 hours. Well, it went from going down to Blockbuster on a Friday night yes. uh, as early in the afternoon as possible to, to make get sure the you movies could get it. <laughs> that you wanted for the weekend to Netflix, who was sh actually shipping. I mean, I remember I, I was an early Netflix adopter. They used to mail them the to you, right? The, the discs in the mail with the return envelope. Yeah. 
you know, and as long as it was postmarked, you know, by Monday morning, yeah. you, you were good. No, yeah. no late fees. Yeah. And then obviously we went to streaming and bandwidth uh, changed everything. Yeah. So let's talk about this as it relates to building, uh, building effective teams. There's a, I'm going to pull apart a lot of this because I think this is one of the things that you and your organization are, are amazingly effective at is helping maybe the Lone Ranger advisor still, the, the solo practitioner with a staff person, all the way up to you know what the industry might call like ensemble teams, like really well-developed sure. out you know, sure. RAAs or teams. But, but share with us some thoughts and observations about what it means, first of all, to have a highly effective team and talk about interdependence. And then right shortly after that, talk about the what you're seeing advisors doing that are building and winning I'm going to use the word winning. I know it's not your favorite word, but that are, that are winning these the these really talented next gen, you know, um, uh, both advisors and technical experts coming out of colleges and universities, and how they're positioning to do that. That's a that's big a big question. question. Again, pull it apart. Yeah, yeah. So I think of uh, advisory firms in sort of two categories: um, uh, 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 solo owned firms um, and ensemble owned firms, multiple member owned firms. Um, we see typically three types of solos. Uh, you're emerging leaders with relatively small teams. Master leaders, they've started to layer in the lead advisors, uh, again, still solely owned. And then enterprise leaders where they might have multiple lead advisors, but again, still uh, solo owned, uh, then make the transition over to ensembles. And there's typically four types of ensembles. We're seeing a fourth even emerge now. The one to five million dollar businesses, those five to 10 million and 10 million to 25, 25 million and above with, again, multiple owners as you scale up and grow. So the, the, these enterprise super mega ensembles, right? There's a whole, so you ask about team, yeah. right? It's really interesting because, you know, if you're an emerging leader, you know, or you're an enterprise ensemble, right? The, the team size grows, the complexity grows, um, the number of owners uh, grows, uh, but the possibility also grows to build something that's truly enduring. And the advisors, you know, uh, maybe start out thinking about the enterprise value of their firm and how can I grow the enterprise value of the firm. But I think it's also about impact in the community. And the advisors that seem to be building the most effective businesses are building interdependent teams that really rely on each other, uh, not just for uh, the service delivery to the client, but to create a durable client experience that's very repeatable and a durable client experience uh, that is shared uh, with the client among multiple members of the team. So the old structure was, you know, you describe a terminology we use at ClientWise frequently, the Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. You know, the solo Lone Ranger who was the primary rainmaker, who then was the primary advisor, who hired support staff to process paperwork. You know, the leader of today is really thinking like, no, 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 we want our impact in our communities to be bigger. We want to build deeper relationships multi-generationally with clients, and we can today. You know, even, cl even clients that have their kids and grandkids that kind of move off, you know, they go to college away, but they stay, you know, where they maybe went to college or they land a new job or they move around. People are much more mobile yeah. than they were 50 years ago, 30 years ago. So the ability to build relationships in a very virtual kind of way, I think we've accelerated that certainly in the last year. But that's, that's realistic. And so when I say experience uh, with the client uh, among multiple team members, it's not a one-to-family relationship or a one-to-a-multi-generational relationship. It's really 
many on the team, multiple members of a team serving a client more holistically. And, and so what happens is early days, right, uh, in, in the smaller solo-owned firms, you know, one person's doing everything. And then you start hiring. And, and by the time you cross over, become an ensemble, now you're starting to build out departments. Uh, you're starting to scale up and share the advising uh, capability. And the clients are recognizing that they might work with multiple members of the firm, that they're not clients of a, you know, Ron, that they're clients of a, of, of a live well, of a, of a firm that's committed to serving their family. And that transition uh, requires team. And it requires a team to be in alignment about where are we headed, what kind of business are we building, uh, what's the vision of the business we're building, and there's a human element uh, that each member of the team must understand what skills, uh, what experiences, uh, what credentials and capabilities they need to acquire to be better, uh, a greater value, better value, not only for themselves and to the team members, but also for the client. And attracting talent, building a culture where people are excited to be on a career journey and a career path that's tied to the future success of the business. You talk about future of advice, that's what this podcast is all about. The future of advice is uh, teams working collaboratively to serve clients, creating experiences where the clients know they can trust the firm, uh, not just uh, trust an individual. And, and that transparency, uh, that partnership, uh, that complete uh, piece is differentiating when firms pull it off well. What are, and I have my suspicions to the answer, but I, I just, I won't bias you by giving mine. What are some of the holdbacks? What are, what are advisors and firms waiting for? Yeah. Um, it seems clear to me that building, building a team of really talented people, that's, that's work, right? But it can be done. And transforming the, the client's framing of, I'm not a client of Ron Bolos's anymore, I'm a client of the team. That creates enterprise value and enduring value. We'll come to that, but what, what are, what's the holdback? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think there is much holdback. I, okay. I, you know, maybe it's because that's all. That's all you people do. We work with. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's true. There are lots of firms that have wonderful lifestyle practices. Yeah. You know, where you know they're serving a small group of clients. Um, I would challenge that group to read Chapter Four uh, in my book, which is the Big Fat Lie. Hey, what will happen to those clients? What will happen to those clients in the event of disability or death, uh, or a desire to retire? Uh, you know, if an advisor is going to taper uh, and work a little bit less, uh, are they just renting the relationships? Uh, and until such time as they choose not to serve uh, clients, uh, they'll just exit out uh, gently. Um, I, I think uh, those advisors who deeply care about their clients, and most do, I believe most do, uh, want to look for a firm that they can partner up with. Maybe they can uh, you know, transfer some of those client relationships and make sure those families are cared for uh, multi-generationally, for sure. But you ask, you know, why does that not happen? I think, look, it requires skill, uh, requires capital, uh, requires time and energy. Most advisors got into the business because they love people. People, they love advising. They may not be great business owners. Yeah. It takes another unique skill set to become a business owner. Um, we often ask advisors as we're you know, meeting new prospective advisors as clients, do you identify first as an advisor or do you identify first as a business owner? Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, and that, that's an important question because the advisors we generally work with are, are the ones who identify as a business owner or desire to uh, be more uh, focused around the success of business ownership. And it's business ownership. It doesn't mean they're CEO or COO, um, but, they, but they identify as an owner in some way, shape, or form. And there's a responsibility that comes with being an owner. Uh, which is uh, how to scale up, build teams, build career paths, mm -hmm. and build value for clients. So one of the things I've heard you talk about, and I'm going to pick at this just a little bit more, and, and then we'll, we'll shift gears because I want to ask uh, about some of the other challenges that you see advisors facing you know, in this, the future of advice. Uh, talk to us about the idea of building in a pathway to partnership or a culture of ownership. Sure. Right. When I talk to advisors, still, in, rightly so, they may be a little bit worried about bringing somebody in, giving them a piece of the pie, now having a partner, and that goes south. And you know, but there's something really important, I believe, in terms of finding the talent that's going to help us as advisors. And I'm going to say, win the future again, where we have to show the the, the talented members of our team, especially the next gen team that, hey, this, not only is this your someday, some magical time in the future when I decide to sail off into the sunset, like that's not what I'm talking about. That's the never-ending 10-year slide where the, the Gen 1 advisor just keeps kicking <laughs> the can because they want the money. But, but this idea of having a, a well-thought-out, clear structure that's transparent, it's easy to understand, hit these marks and do this, and I want you yeah. to have ownership in the firm, the clients, the relationships. Talk a little about this pathway to partnership and the importance of Yes. Having this. Yeah, it's passage to partnership. Passage. Passage, passage not path. Okay. Path implies that uh, you're on it and it will happen for you. Okay. Uh, passage is, is more about uh, thinking about the transitions, uh, building a track record of performance uh, that allows uh, someone to uh, earn that spot. Um, so uh, step back a second. There are, uh, we think of it client-wise, two types of partners uh, inside some of the larger ensembles. Um, and, and those partners who are next-gen leaders mm -hmm. and those partners who are next-gen owners. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a different skill set to become an owner, that entrepreneurial spirit, that ability to take risk, um, that access to capital to be an investor. There's only three things advisors can do with their equity. They can uh, gift it. Uh, they can discount it uh, or they can sell it at fair market value. And uh, we notice that advisors who are, you know, built really big teams uh, that are solos, you know, uh, get lots of pressure from the next gen in their firm. It's like, and you mentioned it just a moment ago, like, hey, when are you leaving? Yeah. Hey, when do we get to buy? When's my turn? When's my turn? Yeah. yeah. Um, we had a, an advisor, a client of ours last year. We've been saying to him for years, look, you got to think about uh, how are you going to transition some of this equity. You know, he, he just uh, approached 50, 52, 54, and he's got four uh, lead advisors, each of which, which have been with him for 12 to 17 years. And as a sole owner, you know, that's, uh, that creates a lot of tension inside a firm that if, you know, uh, there's just that one owner and you're talking about building a multi-generational team, but you're not really sharing in uh, the responsibility of owning the firm and the, and the benefits that come with growing shareholder value, uh, which is ultimately that client value, then those uh, team members are going to exit you. 
And in fact, he experienced that last year um, and uh, worked hard to get that person back. And then, you know, quickly manufactured within 90 days, you know, sale of tranches of equity <laughs> to the next gen um, and, and was able to retain all the team members, uh, but could have been way more disruptive than it yeah. was. So, so back to this idea there are essential operators, uh, essential uh, partners inside every advisory firm who are going to be part of the future of the running of the business uh, and advising of clients who are likely not going to become owners. But they're essential to the business operation and, and to the advising capacity. Uh, and so uh, those are your NGLs. Those are your next generation leaders. And so um, uh, the very few who, like big law firms, are great at bringing new business in to the firm and helping to grow the firm, uh, those folks are likely to be more of the uh, next-gen owners inside the businesses. I had a client, a multi-billion dollar uh, RIA firm uh, that we've been working with for a few years, uh, who was really zeroing in on this succession strategy. And they had a, a few owners in the firm um, that really were the key drivers of the business, really good at uh, advising many of the clients, and they'd create a nice structure for those next generation owners. What they didn't identify was that some of those next gen owners didn't want to be next gen owners, that they didn't want to take the risk, that they didn't have uh, uh, much of the capital. In some cases, they had the capital, they didn't but, want the risk. But they didn't want the risk. And the risk was, Ron, which is really interesting, they knew that if the, uh, the owners of the business were to exit the business, they didn't know who was going to grow the thing. They didn't have that skill set. And so, so they, um, they decided to opt out of being a next-gen owner. And so you know, here you've got these, uh, these owners who are like, oh, good, we've done a great job. Look at all these next-gen professionals that we've got. And yet not one of them had the ability... Uh, the desire uh, to be able to uh, buy into the business and, and to actually make the transition so their succession strategy was dead in the water. And so you, wow. you, you know, it takes seven to ten years to develop a next-gen professional. Seven to ten years. Seven to ten years okay. to develop that next-gen professional. And, uh, and uh, in doing so, there's a period of time that the, these passages, you know, understanding how to make an impact as an advisor, understanding how to make an impact uh, as a leader in the firm, uh, helping with strategy, helping with goal planning, goal setting, running of the business. You know, all of that takes time to develop that track record. Um, and so the advisor that creates a, cl a clear path, uh, path, path to a future uh, starts developing these passageways and opportunities for growth. So owning operational, uh, an operational project, an objective for the firm, owning something uh, strategically for the firm, mentoring next-gen talent, recruiting, taking on responsibility for recruiting or developing. Uh, all of those experiences uh, build a track record and are part of the passage uh, on the way to partnership. Partnership could be next-gen leader or next-gen owner. Does that help? Yeah, no, and I think it's... Uh... It's a very important thing because the idea that I'm picking up from you is it's not simply a matter of you know going out there and hiring a bunch of people that are younger than you by a decade or something. Absolutely like this. not. That, that's right. not that's not it. And it's especially not hiring another advisor from another firm and saying I'll sell you 25% of my book in when I'm ready years, to exit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's not that. No. This is a very intentional filtering process, and I like the word passage as opposed to pathway because pathway kind of says, hey, I've stuck you on the escalator. And as long as you don't mess up, you're kind of a shoe-in. Right. But passage implies you've got to navigate this yet yes. with us. That's right. I'm going to read one more quote, 
uh, from your book. It's actually from the introduction, so it feels a little lazy to read a quote from the intro, but it, your intro was written by Mark Tversion, and I, yes. I think he succinctly identified some things. So one more quote about the challenge of the industry, and then I'm going to flip for the you know, next 10, 15 minutes, because uh, I know your, your schedule's tight, to some things that you see coming down the pipe for advisors. So one more about kind of the challenges advisors and firms face. Here's Mark's words from the intro to your book, You've Been Framed. The financial services profession is going through a profound change. What has worked in the past will not work in the future. Today's economics, demographics, and regulatory environment introduce a whole new set of challenges for the business. In my experience, I find the profession divided into two camps, those who live in the past and complain about the present, and those who see the present as a catalyst for the future. So, Mark has a way with words, doesn't he? I mean, he's a genius. Again, when I was reading yeah. back to the book for like the 17th time, I don't know how I didn't have that flagged and, yep. and highlighted. But I think this succinctly captures this. Yes. Right? You have those that are kind of moaning and groaning about COVID canceling stuff and not going to the office and I can't develop business the same way and regulatory, like on and on and on. And then you have those that see this as a catalyst for what's coming next. So before we shift to getting your perspectives on what the future of advice looks like for, you know, for advisors and teams, one last pass. Are there any, we've, we've covered some challenges, right? Talent acquisition, business development, you know, reframing. Any other big challenges that you see advisors and firms facing today? Uh, I think there is a, uh, and forgive me for saying it this way, uh, I think there's a professionalization uh, of financial services uh, th that is a challenge for, for many advisors. Not that they're not professional, but moving from uh, a producer mindset, moving from um, uh, a delivery of products and services uh, mindset, uh, which is somewhat transactional, to uh, a business structure, a professionalization where there's corporate governance on the team, there's uh, hiring strategies, there's professional development planning for each of the members of the teams, you know, to equity ownership and operating agreements. You know, there's this evolution among the best of the business, and you're seeing evidence of it too uh, with the PE firms entering the oh, business, sure. right? Yeah. So, you know, high ridge, uh, 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 long ridge equity, uh, uh, light year capital, right? You see, you're seeing this flood of uh, private equity monies coming in. I mean, Joe Duran selling United Capital to Goldman, right? There's a, there's a shift of professionalization that's occurring in the industry that's requiring those who uh, imagine a bigger future for their teams, their businesses, and their clients, having to make a shift in building better businesses. And building better businesses with purpose, and building better businesses using data to make better decisions about their business. That's a major transformation for most uh, solo-owned businesses. It's also a major transformation for ensembles that have lived either in that one to five million or the enterprise ensemble space between five and 10. Because intentional growth, intentional growth, if, if advisors are focused on providing great value to clients, they can't help but grow. Most of our clients aren't struggling with finding new clients. I mean, there, there's, a, there's an oversupply of clients in the United States of America and an undersupply of financial advisors. Most advisors might not feel that way, but just look at the data sure. in terms of the number of financial advisors with a CRD who are like legit financial advisors. I'm not talking about the bank teller yeah. or the wholesaler, you know, the branch manager at Merrill, like take them out of the equation. Client-facing advisors and the abundance of wealth in our country 
those advisors that capitalize on the scaling up of their businesses and build better businesses that have purpose and using data to do so, that's a challenge for many. Uh, and, and we see that as a big opportunity yeah, and springboard huge. for I mean, the that, future. That, that same 2019 Ernst & Young report, they found that one-third of wealth management clients said they plan to switch firms or advisors in the next three years. One-third. One yeah, it's a big. There's money in motion. The, there's the no opportunity doubt. opportunity is, is, is huge. I think that's a, a really great one. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit because this is a part of the fun piece that I wanted to uh, really dig into a little bit because, again, I think you're – you get a peek behind the curtain at some of the most effective, you know, top performing teams across the industry. So not even like in the independent broker dealer space or the independent RA space or the wirehouse space. I mean, you have teams in all of these we do, spaces, yeah. yep. right? Um, talk to me about what you think the advisor of the future needs to look like and, and what they need to deliver to their clients uh, I'm going to use the word win again, right, to win okay. the future. Ta take take yeah. us forward five years and ten years, right? Yeah. What is what is the value of a financial advisor? Well, that's a different question. That's a different question. Uh, take, different question. Us, but let's, let me take make the, them, let's make them interconnected okay. because I think yeah. how the advisor is delivering value to the client is probably part of maybe, at least in my opinion, what what the, the future of advice might look like. Uh, I'll, I'll, so break them apart. Yeah, I'll break them apart. I, I, let me start with what um, one of the advisors we coach, a large RIA uh, here in Texas, um, the, the owner says uh, frequently to his uh, a large team uh, and, and to the clients. And I've been fortunate enough to help facilitate a couple of advisory client meetings for him. Uh, but, but his mantra is clear, and that is build the firm the clients want, not the one you want to build. And it's an interesting mantra because I think the future of advice and where we're really going is that advisors uh, who are able to make the shift and become powerful listeners to what clients want and, and uh, requires that the, that the advisor defines who the client is they wish to serve and then ask the right questions. The power is in the question. Mm. What do clients want and what will having that do for them? And if the advisors of the future spend more time thinking like a marketing research firm where you're exploring what, what others want and you're able to build and deliver that, then you're gonna win the future. Uh, and, and I'll give you a very specific example. We recently conducted, uh, and this advisor has a, a really nice successful business focusing mostly on the affluent uh, and ultra-affluent. And when we conducted the, uh, the latest advisory uh, board meeting, two things came from the clients that were more than aha kind of, meet, kind of uh, discussion points. One was, hey, you've got a really good tech platform, but it feels out, out of date. Coming from a 68-year-old, uh, <laughs> fairly affluent, it's like, look, yeah, you know, I, your app's good, it's all good, but you know what, from everything else I'm using, this feels out of date. And so uh, the digital experience isn't for the 23-year-old. It's for the 68-year-old, yeah. right? Because they're, they're doing the same thing. You know, he's in the south of France wanting to move money from one account to another, and it looks like an old DOS version of something and, and, and not a, right? And so he's like, yeah, it works, but it, it's not as intuitive, right? Thank you, Steve Jobs. Everything just got more intuitive, right? Okay, so that, that was one thing, that that whole digital interface uh, and delivery, uh, you know, two o'clock in the morning, the client wants to be able to like play what if on their financial yeah. plan, yeah. you know, and you've got it doesn't mean they don't value the advisor. It means they want access. Yeah. 
and an ability to do so. The second thing that came from the meetings, which I thought was really, really interesting, uh, was, and there was, was a pretty nice uh, group of clients. They all had the same issue, but they had a different take on the issue. The issue was, uh, they said to the advisory firm, they said, your firm's not doing enough to educate the heirs of our wealth about what we want for our wealth. And, uh, and, and it was really interesting because part of their, this firm's value proposition is they really help their clients define uh, what they want for their wealth, like the purpose, you know, they've acquired wealth, you know, the, and, and so now what, what, what good do they want to do in the world? And not just the philanthropic kind of piece, but, you know, the, the longevity and the transfer of that wealth uh, multi-generationally. Well, one of the clients said, you know, uh, my daughter really doesn't care much about money. Uh, she just knows it's there and can do anything she wants. And so how do you plan on educating her and connecting with her? Wow. Uh, because you're talking about the investment piece and she really doesn't care much about the investment piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how, how is your firm plan on connecting with her as an heir? Whereas, you know, my son, you know, he works in the banking field and he really is deeply connected to understanding the capital markets and is willing to have those complex capital market wealth management kind of conversations. Since I've got two kids and they couldn't be further from each other. Interesting. The future of advice is connecting with each of them. And the future of advice is that firm built to serve both of them. Both of them. Yeah. And that's a tricky proposition because it isn't the old days of just finding a bunch of people who got money and charging them one point and calling yourself a fiduciary. The future of advice is about listening to what clients want and delivering for them. This client was saying... Simple. (laughs) Simple, right? Wave a magic wand. Pixie dust, boom, right? But the client was saying, you need to connect with both of them. How do you plan on doing it? Oh, and by the way, my app works fine, but it doesn't feel like it's up to date. Right, so the future of advice, I think the evolution of advice is gonna be connecting uh, on a whole multitude of issues and being a, being a better life coach and a partner to clients to help them make powerful decisions, connecting with the heirs uh, of their wealth. Uh, table stakes will be the investment management piece. Table stakes will be the delivery of quality products and best execution and you know financial planning and kind of putting in the models and the money. That's going to get you a seat at the table. That, that's yeah. all that does, right? The relationship and helping people make powerful decisions and connecting to their future by designing systems and a structure and a pathway to get to that future yeah. uh, will be what I think the future of advice will likely be more about. That was that was an awesome answer. And can you unpack for us? Three minutes. Yeah. Or actually take as much time as you want. It's my podcast. I spent <laughs> a half hour on this. Um, maybe a three-minute thing, because you just talked about an advisory board kind of client meeting structure. Um, we haven't done that yet with my firm. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking, man, Why I not? I, okay. Unpack it for us. Just give yeah. us a high-level overview. How do you structure it? What does it look like? Okay. Details. And I know the. You know, yeah, yeah, more, yeah. There's going to be way more to how to do it effectively, yeah. but just give us right. a sense of, like, how do you do that? Yeah, um, so uh, silly, uh, as you're saying it out loud, I'm wondering why not, Yeah. right? Uh, because you don't have all the answers, Yeah. right? Your clients have all the don't answers. Tell my wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know, let's stop and think about it, right? You know, if you think about who you're trying to build uh, a business for, yeah. uh, if you're trying to build the business for yourself, um, you'll miss the mark every time. Define who you want to serve, 
uh, and begin asking them very important questions about what they want. Mm -hmm. What will having that do for them? So what's the structure look like? I, I think, uh, let me go back to the old client-wise conversation, those five questions we talked about earlier in the podcast. I would say the, the clients who maybe lean into that conversation, they've got incredibly thoughtful answers. Grab onto uh, them. Grab onto them. Start there. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, and, and pick the ones that seem to be the influencers. You know, at ClientWise, we talk about total relationship value, which is, uh, you know, sort of the take, take the clients who have uh, referred your firm, you know, uh, their friends uh, and their colleagues and their neighbors, uh, uh, and look at the fees those clients are paying you. And then add up the fees of those they've referred you, and that's their total relationship value. So I would start with three criteria. Who are the clients that have the highest total relationship value? Meaning they've brought a network uh, of theirs uh, to you and your firm. Best in the business still today, more than 90% of net new money, net new households are coming from an introduction from another. And we've seen that amplified over the last year for sure. So start with those that have the highest total relationship value. Look among that group, who are your influencers? And when you ask the five questions, number three, the ones that kind of lean into the answers and they've got something to say. Now you've got a small segment of maybe five to seven clients. I'm not a big fan of calling them advisory boards per se, although uh, the experience I was sharing with you, the advisor uh, does have them on a board. Boards have um, typically term uh, terms. You, you, what you're doing is not, you don't want to anchor that like, hey, we want your opinion for a year and then not. Um, but make it more informal, uh, maybe a couple of touch points a year. Would you mind uh, getting together uh, and invite the client? And I think the, the language that uh, this advisor uh, shares with his team and his clients I think is brilliant, which is, hey, we're building a firm uh, for you, not for us. And your voice matters way more than ours does. And we really need your take on a few things. Would you mind spending an hour uh, with myself and my executive leaders and just simply share your thoughts on a few key topics? Yeah. And that, your best clients yeah. are going to be the ones that are going to be like, I'd love to do that. I want to be a part. part of that. Yeah. I mean, they get it, right? Like, like, wait a minute. You're building a business for... Okay. Yeah. That's client-wise. That's awesome. Pun intended, by the way. Yeah. The wisdom sits... The wisdom sits with others. Your job as an advisor, Ron, is to evoke the wisdom. And so if you can understand uh, uh, what uh, those clients are willing to share uh, and, and what they really, really want, and you deliver for them, they'll be a better referrer source. Uh, they will value you. They will stick with your firm uh, at every given turn. And, and that anchor uh, for the team culturally, building a firm with that kind of attitude internally, um, I don't think game it, changer. Yeah, game changer. Game changer. I, I don't think advisors ask enough of yeah. what their clients really want. Guilty. I'm actually sitting here thinking, you know, of all the stuff we've done with LifeWorks in, in the last couple of years with the technology and the growth, like we need to stop more and ask our clients. Yeah. What do you want your What do you want this to look like for you and, and your next gen? You're, you're asking like, what's a good way to do this? Yeah. Okay. No kidding. If you're familiar with, uh, you know, sort of the uh, agile method of yeah. technology building, yeah. which I know you're heavily involved in that space. How does agile work? Yeah. Right. The old days was you build something on a mainframe. It takes you bring a couple it out of a year years. and a half later, yeah, right. and everybody's yeah. like, "That's not well, what I that want." Wasn't what, right. What's agile? Agile is you get something up and running, and you get people to test it out. Yeah. Hey, what do you think? So that's why I'm not a big fan of board meetings. Make them advisory meetings, mm -hmm. and make them fluid, mm -hmm. 
and uh, more frequent and bring and adapt, different groups and together. Be yeah. Hey, yeah, listen, you know, we're, we're, we want to test something out. You know, we're about to launch our website. Uh, hey, do you mind taking a look and just react to it? Oh, I know you're not a web developer, right? But you're going to probably use the site. Tell us what you think. That's hey, we're idea. thinking about acquiring an accounting firm uh, to add on an additional, you know, product line. Hey, do us a favor. Like, do you mind stepping into that conversation? Just tell us like what you think about yeah. that. I mean, as simple as it sounds, you know, it's simple. It's just, well, one of the benefits I found for being in, you know, your coaching program, shameless plug for Ray's program, um, is that we get so busy running our businesses and involved with family and kids and sports and maybe what's left of my time, a few hobbies here or there. And we don't stop enough. I know I'm guilty of this. I don't stop enough and actually just reflect on the yeah. actual business itself. And something as simple as saying, well, of course, I could think of 10 people right now, like some of our, our most like active clients that are really passionate about what we're building. And they'd and be just willing invite to. invite them into this. Yeah, yeah it's a, this That's is it. a no-brainer. Yeah, it's, it's important for advisors to hit timeout. Yeah. Um, and this is an old Dan Sullivan trick uh, that I learned along the way. Hey, every 90 days, you got to hit a pause button and uh, reflect, uh, hey, what worked, uh, what didn't, uh, what's new and different, what are some issues, what are some opportunities, okay, now I gotta build a next 90-day kind of sprint. Got it. And just break the year down into four segments, and uh, you know, e each uh, quarter, you, know, you just kinda keep running. That kind of cadence, I think, is really healthy uh, as well, so you, that's a good, good point you bring up. That's awesome. All right, wrapping up. Um, I could go on for a day asking questions and just absorbing wisdom. Two-part question okay. to, to wrap up, uh, maybe a bonus question at the end, but if you could give one piece of advice, and I'm gonna kind of break your rule and say I'm gonna ask you to give me one. Okay, um, yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to the next-gen, growth-oriented, hungry advisor, right, that maybe is listening to this or watching this, what would it be? Uh, uh, I think I just gave it. Uh, build the <laughs> it business very well your be. client wants, not yeah. the one you want. Yeah. Uh, but if I moved uh, beyond that, I would say um, think big. Think big. Um, and, and, and think about what's possible. Uh, the, I'm more excited about the business today than I think I've ever been in 35-plus years uh, because uh, I see uh, now how financial services has evolved uh, the expansive need that the community, uh, our citizens in America have, uh, the entrepreneurship and what our uh, country has been founded upon. Mm -hmm. Like, you can build anything Amazing today. Things. I mean, so, I, you know, I would not let the old structures. Marshall Goldsmith wrote a really good book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And, and, and I would encourage that, by the way, the title doesn't do the book justice. It's really about leadership and uh, about recognizing what shifts as a leader you've got to make. But the title is a pretty cool title in that I would look to the future as, as you know, dream big, think big. Uh, you know, what does a multi-billion dollar firm uh, look like? You know, uh, how can you create uh, value for your team members? I, I look at great companies like, you know, Google and HubSpot and, you know, Salesforce and Marketo and some of these marketing companies and high-tech companies that have done such a beautiful job at building team culture and excitement around the purpose behind what you're building, using data analytics to make better business decisions about organizational structure and profitability that drive enterprise value. Like, think big. It is really possible here, and you've got uh, just the early stages of M&A activity. I mean, I say early stages. It's just been six years that we've seen this ramp up. Of money in know. the industry. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think, there's, I think the possibility is really big. 
uh, and you can build it. Uh, if you can dream it, you can build it, and, and now's the time to do so because I think we're about to experience, and I don't mean to be sort of Nostradamus-ish here, but I think we're about to experience uh, in our country uh, coming out of this pandemic uh, sort of a community of people just ready to explode and, and try new things. And I think we're going to see an entrepreneurship in our country uh, and a movement over the next uh, 36 months uh, that we could have never imagined pre-pandemic. That's interesting. That's awesome. Catch the wave. Okay. Think big. I like that. Um, okay. Second part question. That's okay. always one that, that's, a, that's a favorite for me. Um, and, and I think I know what one of your answers is going to be because you mentioned it right before we went on camera. Um, top handful of books that an advisor should be reading right now Ooh. or a firm owner. You mentioned one of them to me on camera. He said it's the best book you've read in five years. Uh, yeah. What are the top uh, uh, three? So, if you were to pick one, two, three uh, books, just get fast, think fast, ham- hammer off some that you think Okay, so uh, uh, so I, I'm a big, avid uh, reader. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, I'll pick, uh, and so when I say it's the, probably the best book I've read in five years, Yeah. Uh, I really do mean it. Yeah. Uh, Think Again. Think Again. Uh, uh, by Adam Grant. By right? Adam Grant. He wrote the originals. Yeah. Uh, but this book has great stories in it. Mm. Uh, it's a really, really good uh, read. Um, I would say uh, read it with your team. Read it with your kids. Read it with somebody you love. Mm. Um, and and Think Again. Mm. Uh, so, And it's a brand new book. just came out a few weeks ago. And I, I had the pleasure of listening to a two-and-a-half-hour uh, interview of Adam Grant on Clubhouse that was just absolutely phenomenal. I think the guy's a genius. Uh, so think again. Everything that we know, it ta- Brene Brown said it best uh, as a descriptor of the book. It takes uh, more to uh, energy and courage uh, to relearn what we've already uh, learned and to think again. Uh, so, uh, so, okay. and Brene, I'm a big fan of, if you haven't listened to Brene Brown's podcast, I'd encourage you to do so. Second book, an oldie, an oldie, um, uh, but I would go back, anything by Robert Diltz okay. uh, is genius. Uh, Diltz was a early day, effective communicator. One of his older books, though, is one worth pulling out. And it's really about belief systems and belief structures. It's kind of in line a little bit with, with uh, Think Again, but in a, in a different sort of way. And that is From Coach to Awakener. From Coach to Awakener. Yeah, by Robert Diltz. Uh, you'll find it on Amazon. It's an oldie. Uh, it'll be a used copy, I'm sure, that you'll buy. Um, and then the last book, uh, I would say, uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, it is uh, Measure What Matters mm-hmm. by John Doerr. D-O-E-R-R. Door was a venture capitalist in a startup company called Google uh, and uh, has been a board member on many different high-tech companies and has been super successful in helping uh, uh, companies that are committed to growth uh, restructure their old MBO KPI structure into an OKR structure, meaning... Uh, and, and if you read any of Simon Sinek's uh, uh, work, you know, the start with why and, and that there's a purpose behind the business. Well, what I like about Doerr's work is he marries this idea uh, of the purpose-driven company, this idea of, like, what are your real objectives? What are you really trying to achieve? Like, let's not just write goals down uh, and, and build a plan without understanding what really are the longer-term objectives. And, uh, and, and if each professional on the team understands what the objectives are of the company, then you allow members of the team to get way more creative about designing their own objectives uh, and measures of result. And, and that 
collective interdependent structure, structure of creating strategy is far more effective than the old uh, management, yeah, top down yep. management, uh, key performance indicators, you know, uh, and, and so I, I would uh, I would say doors uh, doors work. And, and what's great about the book is uh, there are uh, a key uh, set of four chapters that are extremely powerful, and uh, the audio book is actually better than uh, the written book because the audio book. He interviews CEOs along the way. So the case the studies in there are. Yeah, interview. yeah, they're all. Yeah. yeah, so you get the like the real life That's sense. Awesome. Yeah. So think again by Adam Grant from Coach to Awakener by Robert Diltz. Yep. And uh, Measure, Measure What, what matters, matters by John Doerr. John Doerr. Awesome. Yep. You awesome got stuff. it. Ray, I have, as always, uh, absolutely enjoyed this time and, and uh, listening to your experiences and your wisdom and uh, stuff. So thank you for carving out the time to be on My the pleasure. Advice podcast. Hey, congratulations on all your success. It's an honor to be here and to help in any yeah. way. Yeah, thank you. All right, so if you are a next-gen growth-oriented hungry advisor wanting to grow and build something really big, I would highly encourage you to go to clientwise.com. Ray has an amazing team. This is a plug for ClientWise because my team has been using them with amazing results. Can't speak highly enough of his team. If you're somebody who's been in the business for a long time and you're thinking about succession plan or getting on stock or you still have a vision for what you want to build, ClientWise.com, reach out to Ray's team. They have groups all over the country. Most of us are meeting virtual right now, hopefully soon to be in person again. Again, my name is Ron Bullis uh, with LifeWorks Advisors. Thank you for watching, and I hope you enjoyed another episode of The Future of Advice. Thank you.